If you've got a Bible, you can go to Acts chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll probably have some verses up on the screen. So several years ago, we preached through the book of, uh, the book of Acts. And by several years ago, I mean like a long time ago, probably six, seven years ago. And uh, we preached through the book of Acts. And I, I think at that point, I was like 28 years old. And the book of Acts just beat the trash out of me. And, and here's what I mean. The book of Acts is just notoriously hard to preach through. And the reason it's hard to preach through is because you start getting into like chapter 14 and it's just so full of repetition. Uh, if you've ever read the whole book of Acts, what you find is like you start to get to like the second half of the book and it seems like the same sermon happens again. And the same stories happen again. And the same kind of things happen in different towns as happened in other towns. And I was like 28, 29 years old preaching through the book of Acts. And I just did not know what to do with that amount of repetition. And it was just epic pastor fail because I told everybody we were going to preach through the book of Acts. I think I got to chapter 14 and just like apologized to everybody and quit on the book of Acts. Um, And so... I, I'm, I'm so excited to get to pick back up the book of Acts. We started it last year and uh, we're going to finish it in the next couple of months. And one of the reasons I'm excited is because I feel like I have a different perspective on repetition than what I had in my mid-20s, right? I, I feel like there's actually something really profound that God's showing us in the book of Acts with the kind of repetition that he uses. And here's what I mean by that. Like um, a couple of examples to just show you why this is beautiful If you think about what makes a really healthy, thriving marriage, and there are no perfect marriages, but thankfully there's some marriages that are healthy and growing in health. If you think about what makes a healthy marriage, it's it's not really the passionate, exciting, explosive moments on the mountaintop that really make a great, healthy marriage. Like, thank God that those moments come sometimes. But if you think about what makes a really glorious marriage, it's like, it's, it's the little slow repetitions of things like learning to apologize and repent and say you're sorry, right? Learning to listen, learning to sit face to face. Um, th- there's repetition all around us that we just kind of get numb to and we forget the fact that there's grace and there's beauty in some of the mundane repetitions of our lives. Like for instance, I doubt that any of us rolled out of the rack this morning, walked outside, looked at the sunrise and said, oh my goodness, he did it again. Isn't that incredible? But the reality is, while you were asleep, if Jesus wasn't holding the universe together by the word of his power, our entire cosmos could have spun into disorder. Our sun could have burned out last night, and you could have just woken up into a universe absolutely at the end of itself. But what happened? The sun rose again. And that was an evidence of grace and mercy and kindness and God sovereignly working in the natural order, not as the God of the deist that creates everything and throws it out and says, good luck, but the true creator God who's intimately involved in creation. Now, here's why this has something to do with the book of Acts. Yeah, there's repetition. We're going to get to sermons in the second part of the book of Acts. And you're going to be like, like didn't Paul just already preach that when he was at a different town? And you're going to get to stories and you're going to be like, didn't a crippled guy get healed in that other town? And it sounded a lot like this. And you're going to get to towns where revivals happen and then persecution happens. And you're going to be like, didn't that happen in the last four towns? And here's what I want to say in that repetition, God's actually showing you something really profound about who he is and what his mission is. He's showing you that he's actually committed, he's committed to the ongoing work of moving towards a world that's torn by sin and death. We are worshiping today as we gather together a missionary God. 
And the repetitions we're going to be looking at in the book of Acts are not meaningless repetitions. The repetitions are trying to drive at what is the very heart of Jesus for the world and what should be the heart of the church for the world, not as an institution marked and defined by buildings and social clubs and people escaping the world, but the church as the body of Christ committed to following Jesus in his missional movement to redeem and reconcile and restore people to the Father through the finished work of the Son. So with that in mind, yeah, there's gonna be repetition and praise be to God for this kind of repetition. Like praise God that he didn't just save one or two people that didn't deserve it, but he's actually drawing multitudes from every nation and tribe and tongue that don't deserve it. That's repetition that should create some worship and some thankfulness in our souls. Amen. So with that in mind, today we get to kick back off our third part of the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts 13 and 14 over the next couple of months. We're going to take some bigger chunks of this book. So uh, if you want to read along, we got study guides. You can grab those, download them from our website, and uh, you you can sort of read this on your own because we're not going to cover every single detail. Today, we get to talk about the very first missionary journey. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're trying to figure out what is the heart of the gospel or the good news of Jesus, I think you're going to see it in this story. If you're a Christian today and you're kind of feeling a little bit disconnected from Jesus, you're trying to figure out like, why do I not feel moved by the things that we're singing, the things that we're praying? This, I think, is going to be an invitation back to Jesus. And for all of us, I think it's going to actually be a moment where he pulls back the curtain and shows us what he's like. So This is Paul's first missionary journey. I want to start by saying two things about it. It's God's mission. He's the one that sends, and he's the one that empowers. It's God's mission, and he's the one that sends, and he's the one that empowers. Look at Acts 13, verse 4. This is about Paul and a guy named Barnabas, who are leaders in the church in Antioch. They've been praying and fasting, and look what happens next. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit... They went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. First thing I want to know is that the mission of God to take the good news of Jesus to the entire globe, to make disciples that make disciples, to push back darkness, the mission of God is not something that you and I came up with. It's not a human institution. It's not the story of a group of religious guys that in a back smoky room tried to come up with some way to sort of oppress naive, sentimental, superstitious folks with a human institution to try to control them. The heart of Christianity is not that. The heart of Christianity is that God so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus actually died on a cross for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and then Jesus sends God the Holy Spirit to empower his church to then be sent by the Holy Spirit into the world. So let's just stop here for a second and let's think about all the dreams, all the possibilities in 2017, um, all the New Year's resolutions that many of us have already given up on. Right? I noticed that the Y was really busy this last week and I'm just sort of waiting for about the next two weeks to go back because I know that many of you are gonna be gone. Like we've got all these hopes, all these plans, all these dreams, all these could be's in the new year, but here's what I want you to see. One of the greatest realities in a new beginning is this. God is doing something in our city. God is, the living God is. He's doing something in our state. He's doing something in the world. And you don't have to scratch your head to try to figure it out. You don't have to like sort of read the Bible code and try to decipher what God's up to. Here's what God's doing. 
He's sending his church to go to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to tell people the good news of Jesus all over the world. So 2,000 years ago, God the Holy Spirit sends this guy named Paul who used to be a terrorist that killed Christians to go with a guy named Barnabas to be a team to move out into the ancient world to preach the good news of Jesus. Now, as he sends them, he then empowers them. And this is the good news. He doesn't send them and say, good luck, come up with a great strategy, be really winsome, be good at talking to people, be super entrepreneurial, and then it'll work. Um, That's not what he does. He actually sends them, and then he moves by his power to do something. Do we have that map? Can we throw that up here for a second? So let me tell you where he goes. They leave Antioch. They leave Antioch, which is down here in Syria, and they move from there into the island of Cyprus. Cyprus. Now that was Barnabas's hometown. That's where he's from. And, and it's pretty smart whenever possible to actually go back to your hometown after you meet Jesus. And there's a lot of people that knew you before you met Jesus and you get to go back and share, them, share with them why you're different and what's happened in your life. Well, that happened to Barnabas. And they moved from Cyprus and then they went up to a place called Antioch in Pisidia. That's up north. Um, Antioch in Pisidia. This is an area that is present-day Turkey, right? Present-day Turkey. Uh, We're helping plant churches in Turkey through our buddy Karim. Today, 1% of the population is Christian. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of hostility towards the gospel. It was also like that 2,000 years ago, and the mission of God got traction, right? This is Antioch and Pisidia. It's in a region known as Galatia. If you ever look through the New Testament, there's a letter to the Galatians. Well, those churches are about to get planted in this missionary journey. Then they move from Antioch in Pisidia and they go to a town called Iconium. From Iconium, they move on to Lystra or Lystra. Then they move on to Derby, And then they wrap the thing up by traveling back through all the churches. We don't have to go through that. And then they move back from all the churches into Antioch where they started. Now, here's the big idea. Let me try to tell you just how big God moves in these towns. Here's what he does. He sends these guys to take the good news of Jesus. Here's what we see happen in these different communities. In Cyprus, there's this guy known as a proconsul. That's like a government official. And this proconsul, here's the good news of Jesus. And this guy named Elimas, who's a magician. This is a crazy, weird story. This magician named Elimas, he tries to oppose the gospel. And God actually strikes this false prophet magician blind. This proconsul sees what God does and he opens up his ears and God opens his heart. And here's what happens in verse 12 of chapter 13. Then the proconsul believed, this high government official in Cyprus, he believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teachings of the Lord. So here we have a conversion of a really influential government leader. He meets Jesus and he's changed. Then in Antioch and Pisidia, here's what happens. Verse 48 When the Gentiles heard this, these are non-Jewish people. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many who were appointed to eternal life believed. So God is actually sovereignly saving people and opening eyes and opening hearts to Jesus. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So think about this. This is so awesome. These are people that have never heard about Jesus. They've never met Christ. And all of a sudden, these missionaries show up. They start telling people about Christ. And God, the Holy Spirit, does something that we can't do. He draws hearts to love and trust in Jesus. Then they move from there to Iconium. 
In Iconium, in Iconium, things get crazy. Verse one of chapter 14, and it says, now in Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the words of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Jesus is saving people. He's healing people. Jews and Greeks are coming together and forming new Christian communities. Then it moves on to Lystra or Lystra. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprung up and began walking. Jesus heals this guy. That opens the door for them to preach the gospel and tell them the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Then they move on to Derby, And in Derby, it says that they made many disciples. Now, before we go on, stop here for just a second, because I know probably some of us in the room are thinking, that's maybe interesting, maybe not. Um, thanks for trying to do the map, knowing how like not tech savvy you are. I know that you probably put a lot of time into that. Appreciate that. Uh, but... But like, now what? And so what? Because you're talking about the apostle Paul, who's like the rock star of rock stars in the Christian faith. It's like Jesus and then the apostle Paul. So what the heck is the application for my life that you just walked through that great missionary story? Because last time I checked, I'm not going to go plant a church in a different country. Most of us are not called to preach out loud to big groups of people. Uh, many of us, many of us are just trying to figure out how to go to work, how to raise our families, how to like date in a way that glorifies Jesus. So what the heck does this have to do with me? Well, let me point out a couple of things. Certainly you and I are not the apostle Paul. So we can get off the hook for that one. You don't have to write Romans part two. Romans part one is sufficient. You're not Paul. And, and certainly not everybody's called to lead in the local church in the office of elder or deacon. Not everybody's gonna preach the Bible. Not everybody's gonna go plant a new church. But here's what you gotta see about the mission of Jesus. Jesus, the master, and that's a word that we maybe should use more as American Christians. Jesus, the master, the king, he calls people to himself to not just be saved by his grace, but to then follow him on his mission. Now think for a second about what Jesus did in the three years of his earthly ministry. What did he do? Well, he went towards sick people. He went towards sinful people. He was known as a friend of sinners. In fact, one of the biggest criticisms was that Jesus would eat with people that were unclean and untouchable. He went towards people that were sick and hurting and oppressed and in slavery to all kinds of different vices and addictions and problems. He drew near towards people that were lost and hopeless. He did that throughout his earthly ministry. Now let's pause here for just a second and think about it through this lens. If you're a disciple of Jesus, where is Jesus going to walk you towards? Like if, if we really are walking with Jesus, which is what it is to be a Christian, because Jesus is different than Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln died and was buried and he doesn't have a lot of effect on your life today other than historical lessons. But the claim of Christianity is that Jesus is alive. He was raised from the dead and through the Holy Spirit, you're supposed to listen to him and walk with him. That's what it is to be a Christian. So if Jesus did that in his earthly ministry and the calling of a Christian is to actually learn to walk with Jesus, 
what do you think it might be that Jesus is going to walk towards and invite you to follow him in? Look, it's going to be moving towards people that are far from God. It's going to be moving towards sick people and hurting people and places that are dark like Lystra and Derby. It's going to be moving towards people that are hopeless and despairing and people that are, af- that are afraid of their futures. Like if walking with Jesus is what it is to be a Christian, here, here's a thing to contemplate over the next couple of days. For some of us in the room that feel like, ah, oh, man, I put my faith in Jesus, but I used to be closer to Jesus than I am today. And I'm just not moved by what we're singing like, I'm just, not, I'm just not sensing his presence. Like, the gospel doesn't bring me to tears anymore that God in his grace sent Jesus to die for my sins. I'm not really impressed with Jesus that much anymore. I really do believe him, but he feels distant. He feels far from me. I, I would ask you to consider if maybe, just maybe, that sense of disconnect and distance in your relationship with Jesus is that you've tried to walk with Jesus without actually going where he's going. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, if you're born again, you can't be unborn again. There's this great thing that Paul writes about a lot called union with Christ. That by grace, through faith, Jesus' death is counted as your death. Death to sin. Death to the wrath of God. Jesus bore that penalty for you. In Jesus, that union with Jesus means his righteousness is counted as yours. That you don't have to do anything to earn God's love and approval. That's union with Jesus. Can I just say out loud, the great news of the gospel is that if your faith is in Jesus, your union with Jesus can't be shaken when you sin, when you blow it, when you have a bad week, when you have a bad year, when you're not being productive on his mission, your union with Jesus is not shaken. That's good news. But guess what? Your union with Jesus is supposed to lead towards communion with Jesus which is enjoying him and learning to hear his voice through the Holy Spirit and walking with him. And I think for some of us, we're like, man, Jesus used to move in my life and I used to hear his voice and I used to hate sin more and I used to love him more. And these songs used to, he used to move my soul and his scripture used to kindle my affections. And now I'm just like, Jesus, where are you? And, and is this even like, is this even, is this even relevant to where I'm at as a human being? And I would just wager for some of you, because we live in this weird moment in Western history where the church can be a social institution that we just go to to sort of get our gold stamp based on morality, many of us might be feeling distant from Jesus because he's calling you at work and in the neighborhood that you're a part of and in all of the different places that he's placed you in the city to actually follow him on mission towards hurting people, towards lost people, towards people in despair. And maybe you're not enjoying growth and vibrancy and communion with Jesus because that's where he's walking and you're not interested in walking with him. Like, I'm a pastor. Don't think that that doesn't mean that there aren't times that I'm like, Jesus, I appreciate that you're going over there. I'm not gonna go with you. I'll see you when you get back. I'll be right here. Come join me in what I'm doing. But here's the crazy thing about being a Christian. It's not just a mental assent to a set of doctrines. At the heart of Christianity are doctrines. There is truth to this faith, but it's a relationship with the resurrected living Lord. And he's the master and we're his servants. He's the teacher. We're his disciples. And what that means is we're to to follow him where he's going. 
And I guarantee in Edmond and OKC and Shawnee and South OKC, where Jesus is constantly walking towards through his church and through his spirit, is always towards people that are far from God, that are hurting, that are distant, that are under the yoke of darkness. We are called to go with Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be a pastor. Like, you can do that working at Chesapeake. You can do that. You can do that being a stay-at-home mom. You can do that being a college student. You can do that being a history professor. You can do that in all these different fields and places by simply seeing that the mission of God that sent Jesus to draw near to you by grace has now called you to participate and to draw near to other people that are far with the name of Jesus on your lips. We all get to participate in this. Now, let's stop there before we go on with the rest of the story. And let me say that sounds pretty awesome to me, but I also know just how darn hard it is to follow Jesus on mission. Like some of you are like, yeah, I tried to do that. 2016 was gonna be my year of mission. It was gonna be my year where I figured out what my gifts were and I figured out who are the non-Christians in my life that I can love and serve, who are the poor in the city that I can engage with my talents, who are the people at work that might be difficult and lonely and that I can draw near to them and bring the good news of Jesus. I tried it. 2016 was my trying it year and it was also my failing at it year and it was terrible. I tried to follow Jesus on mission and it was not easy. It was hard. I thought it was going to be a lot more fun. And then I did it. And now I'm retired from following Jesus on mission. So let's start some great programs here at the church, like a Christian coffee shop, because I don't want to be out in the world. It's scary. Scary. So let, let me just address that by walking through the rest of this text. It's the spirit of God's mission. He sins and he does move when we talk about Christ and we follow Christ. But let's not be, let's not be naive about how much opposition there is to the mission. Like, let's not be foolish in thinking that following Jesus is the easy button. And let's not be so naive as to think that the point of Jesus coming was to get you all the things that you need to be happy. Let's not be so foolish as to think that. Let's actually see Christianity as it is. He is the end of your joy. And to follow him means that in this life, you are going to go through suffering. Look what happens to Paul and his buddy Barnabas. Let me show you a few ways that on mission they get opposed. I'll go through these really quickly. First of all, there's conflict and rejection. Conflict and rejection. Chapter 13, verse 13 says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This John is also known as John Mark. He was their traveling companion. Eventually, John Mark is going to write the gospel of Mark. So this is like a big Christian guy. But here's what happens, and it doesn't look like a big deal here. But later on, Paul and Barnabas are like, they're like the best buddy cop movie ever on mission. They're like best bros and they're on mission and they're planting churches together. And because of this moment, they're going to break up and go their separate ways. And they're going to have a sharp disagreement. Why? Because Paul is hurt by, and he doesn't have confidence in the character of John Mark, because this is a rejection of the mission through Paul's grid. We don't know why John left. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe the journey was too hard, but nonetheless, here's what happens He's like, yeah, all hands in, stack hands in the middle. Anybody else have this experience where it's like in community, let's all stack our hands in the middle. And then like three months later, you're just there with your own hand in the middle. All right, that happened to Paul. That happened to Paul. 
He got rejected. He experienced the pain of that. Following Jesus on mission sometimes means that like you start taking the gospel seriously and you start growing in repentance and God starts changing you and maybe your spouse doesn't want to go down that road. This is really painful, man. It's really painful to be growing in your faith and in your following of Jesus on mission and your spouse be like, that's stupid. That's not worth me putting my time into. It's rejection. Then they're opposed by people that are energized by evil. I'm not going to read you the whole story. You should totally read it later this afternoon. In Acts 13, starting in verse eight, there's Elimas the magician. And he's literally this guy that's energized by dark evil forces. And he's opposing the mission. He wants to stop the gospel. Then they're opposed by people of influence and crowds. In 1350, the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. So here's like important women and the leading men and they're stirring up crowds to be against the gospel. Then they receive opposition in the form of like fan worship. They heal this crippled guy. And after they heal this crippled man, this priest of Zeus wants to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas and worship them like they're Zeus and Hermes. And Paul's like, oh my gosh, we are, we are just men with the same nature as yours. We're trying to tell you about the Savior. We're not the Savior. And he has to restrain them from offering sacrifices to them. This is just a picture of sometimes the opposition comes in the fan of people that, it comes in the form of people that want to put you on a pedestal that you never should be on in the first place. Like, God starts changing your life. Anybody experience this? God starts changing your life a little bit. You start getting the gospel and your family starts wanting you to be Jesus for them. They start wanting you to carry all the weight. They start acting like you're Zeus or you're Hermes. And you have to be like, hey, for me to follow Jesus means I've got to be a human being and admit the fact that I need the gospel as bad as you need the gospel. Then there's opposition that comes in the form of Paul getting stoned And I got to read this one to you. Some of you are like, that doesn't sound bad, getting stoned. It's not, it's different than that. Some of you are like, that's not even opposition. That is legal in Colorado. (laughs) This is like ancient stoning, not fun, getting rocks thrown at your head. Look at verse 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, They stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. Okay, friends, listen. You might've heard it said, the safest place to be is right in the middle of the will of God. Or if if you're doing good things, good things will happen to you. Or if you're a Christian, if you have enough faith, if you have enough faith, you're always gonna get better or things are always gonna work out. And I just wanna stand up and say like, Here's the story of one of the most amazing missionaries in the history of the church. He loved Jesus. He saw Jesus face to face. He was given such crazy revelation. He wrote a ton of the New Testament and he's following Jesus in the will of God. And it's so hard. It's so hard. In fact, like it ends with this stoning and that's, kind of just a reminder that following Jesus, it's actually, it's actually going to bruise you and it's going to draw blood from you. 
Sometimes that suffering comes in the form of rejection. For some people in our church, it's like we're following Jesus and now our teenage kids or our adult kids are mocking the faith and walking away and it's ripping out my heart to see them do that. Some it's in the form of marriage. Like I'm following Jesus. Why is marriage still so hard? For some, it's with our bodies. It's like I'm trying to follow Jesus on mission and my body's breaking down. I have chronic pain. For some, it's emotional. It's anxiety. It's depression. And I just want to stop here. I just want to stop here and say there's this really big stream flowing through the American church that says, hey, if you have enough faith, it's always going to be easy. Um, if you get Jesus and trust in Jesus, he'll get you all the things you need to be happy, like a healthy body and the perfect spouse and an ideal family and prosperity and the promotions that you want. And I just want to say, man, that just, that just doesn't, it doesn't sink out. It doesn't sync up with the sacred scripture that we have. Sometimes things go awesome. Sometimes the miracle totally happens, man. We so believe in miracles still. We, we, we lay hands on the sick and we have seen God heal people in our church. But the reason they're called miracles is because it's not like, it's not like Tuesday. It's Tuesday. Well, what happened? Well, it's what happens every Tuesday. Every single sick person in our church got healed. It's not been our experience. We see miracles. We want to pray for more. We want to believe. But sometimes following Jesus is in the midst of suffering, in the midst of rejection, in the midst of loss. Some people I know that love Jesus with all their heart still struggle with mental illness. And I just want to say, man, I just want to say, Jesus isn't the means to all the things you need to have a deep life, a fulfilling life, a happy life. Scripture would say he actually is the end of all the longings and desires of your soul. So talking about mission, talking about mission, the spirit of God sends them on mission and he empowers the mission, but then it's really hard. There's all kinds of opposition so what do they do to deal with that? What, what should we do in the midst of trying to follow Jesus when it's really hard? Um, I'll end with three things. How do you hold fast as you're following Jesus on a road with suffering? Three things, quickly. First of all, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. I got one pastor friend that likes to talk about that moment in the movie Step Brothers where they get grounded from the TV. And they're like, what? How dare you? How dare you? I did not see that coming. Like, that's how Christians are in the West when suffering hits. We're like, what? No one told me this was going to happen. Well, here's what scripture says, 1 Peter 4.12. This is the opposite of my experience personally. It's, it says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I'm like, what? This is so strange. I'm in the will of God. I'm trying to read the Bible. I'm trying to pursue Jesus. I'm trying to fight against sin. Why the heck would this thing happen? Why would it be so difficult? Why would it be so painful? Why would it be so hard? Peter's like, hey, like, yeah, duh. You're living in a fallen, broken world. You still have the flesh. You're following the master who got crucified. Don't be surprised. Where do I get this from our story today? Well, look at chapter 14, verse 21. Look at the way they disciple Christians to hold fast. 
says, when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Like, hey, not every suffering is God orchestrating it, but all suffering for the Christian is God allowing and using and redeeming so that you can enter the kingdom of God. Like it's, it's the way that God transforms you and he changes you and he works in your soul to create something beautiful and lasting. It's, it's the way he makes us look more like Jesus. It's, it's something that God is going to do throughout our lives that we shouldn't be shocked by, nor should we pursue it. Like, don't be that Christian. But when it comes, we shouldn't be surprised and we should know that through many tribulations, we're to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't have to get depressed about that. Like, some of you are thinking, well, why? If this is the truth, that we should not be surprised at suffering, like, let's just all start listening to really early Cure albums and we're all black and we'll start smoking clove cigarettes and chanting and we'll just be sad together. Just be super sad together. And, and the truth is like, don't be surprised. Suffering is a part of following Jesus. But, but secondly, there is real joy in the Holy Spirit. Real joy. Look at 13 verse 52. I love this because these disciples are getting the trash beat out of them. Many of them are losing their jobs, losing their homes. They're in danger like crazy. Here's what it says though, 1352. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is different than just circumstantial happiness. And I don't know, people debate, is joy and happiness the same thing? And people do all kinds of different arguments about that. I don't know, but I do know this. I know that there is a way to feel better when everything's going easy in my life. Like I know that if there's money in my bank account and I'm not sick and my kids are not sick and me and Nancy are getting along, like there's a lot of stuff going well. It's hard to be sad under those circumstances. And like at a date night at Ludivine, like that's just a moment where circumstantially things are going well. I'm going to eat some bone marrow. I'm going to be happy. But joy in the Holy Spirit is different. Joy in the Holy Spirit happens in our lives in a way that's not rooted and determined by all those things going well. It's determined by and it's rooted by something really crazy and amazing, the love of God in Christ. It's joy and the Holy Spirit together. And the reason they're together is because the Holy Spirit's job, one of his jobs is to be the spirit of adoption that cries, Abba, Father, from your heart to God. So like any moment where you've ever been overwhelmed by the gospel and you're like, God really loves me. I don't have to earn anything to get his approval. Jesus got the approval and gave it to me as a gift. I hated God. God loved me. That's incredible. I want to sing. I want to shout. I want to cry. Any moment you've ever felt that, that was God, the Holy Spirit, stirring up joy as he filled you afresh. And what's so sad for a lot of Christians is they think that the only two experiences of God, the Holy Spirit, are when they're born again and then when they die and see God face to face. And the truth is you have to have God, the Holy Spirit, do a miracle to love Jesus. But throughout the Christian life, we need to pray for and open our lives up to repeated fillings of God, the Holy Spirit. 
joy in the Holy Spirit comes as we're filled again and again. And, and I'm not going to give you some weird technique for that because the Holy Spirit's not a formula. Jesus says he's like wind that you don't control. So sometimes you're really sad and you're like, hey, Holy Spirit, will you fill me again? And you walk away from that prayer time still just being really sad. At least that's been my experience often. But you can pursue fresh fillings of joy in the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? Well, how do people get filled with the Holy Spirit? And the answer, I think, at least in part, is that they get close to Jesus. Mary was pregnant with Jesus. Her friend Elizabeth her, her, her relative Elizabeth was, present, was pregnant with John, Jesus' cousin. Mary shows up with Jesus in her womb, talks to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is like, whoa, the baby in my womb leapt as you came and spoke to me. And then she points to the fact that the baby was full of the Holy Spirit in her womb. Why? Just because she got close to Jesus. How do you, how do you pursue continual fillings of joy in the Holy Spirit? You think about the love of God in Christ. You sing it, you meditate on it, you read about it. You create space in your life to just sit in it and to enjoy it. I want to be, I want to be like these disciples that in the midst of suffering, they hold fast because one, they don't buy into some weird American pop psychology, crummy theology that says that Jesus is the easy button. I want to not be surprised knowing that we're going to suffer until we see him face to face and then all suffering is done away with, but he's not going to waste any of the suffering. I, I want us to be the kind of people that on mission, we realize that there's joy in the Holy Spirit. And then I'll end with this. Finally, how do you hold fast in the midst of suffering as you're trying to follow Jesus? Finally, you need communion with other saints communion with other saints. And let let me just show you what happens. This is all over this text, but I'll just pull out one place for time. 14 verse 19. When Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. For many of us, that's where the story would end because you don't have any gospel community in your life. Look at verse 20 for Paul. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. And the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Do you see what happens there? Like people are chucking rocks at his head. He's out cold. And we don't know if this is like a miracle or if this is just, they got around him and revived him and gave him water. But what we do know is that Paul is like bleeding and he's busted up on the ground and he should have quit by all human standards. And all of a sudden, his, his brothers and his sisters, his spiritual family, they actually get around him and he's able to get back up and actually go back into the town that threw the rocks at him and keep following Jesus. And then what does he do? Well, then throughout the rest of the story, he doesn't just make disciples, he plants churches. The mission is not just to make Christians, it's to, it's to see Christians gather together and be the church. And he does that by laying hands on elders. And and then they actually end the journey by going back to their own home church to be strengthened and celebrate what God just did. Here's the big idea. It's really difficult to follow Jesus on mission in the midst of suffering and opposition and be a me and Jesus Christian. It's really difficult. I feel like I got good biblical grounds to say it's impossible, except for the fact that If you're ever in a scenario where you didn't choose it and God isolates you so you have to depend on him alone, it's possible. 
But you choosing it, I, I just don't know that it's possible to endure and persevere in the midst of suffering and opposition as a follower of Jesus and say, well, I got this on my own. I'm good. You need community. You need communion with the saints. You need people to get around you. In fact, I would just ask you today, if, if the rocks flew at your head and you were on the ground bleeding, metaphorically, Rocks get thrown at your head. You're on the ground bleeding. Are there people that can actually get around you, circle around you so that you can get back up and follow Jesus back into the place of opposition to keep following him? And by the way, not just people that's your handpicked weird little circle of friends in like 19 different states that don't really know you. Talking about people in the town that you live in that are part of your community that can get around you. If not, You don't have to despair. You just need to respond. This is why we do gospel communities here called community groups. And they're not the end all be all. They're not a silver bullet. They're not even all awesome. Some of them are not that great. I'll just be honest. Like there's the, there's the fine print. Some of them are bad. Some of them will be worse if you show up. But the beauty of the church is not that it's always really thriving and healthy and great and strong and sexy and fun. The beauty of the church is that we experience the strength of Jesus as we come together, as we come together and remind each other of his promises and pray for each other and love and serve each other. The beauty of marriage is not that it's always like your honeymoon, right? If it's always your honeymoon, then what is a honeymoon? Honeymoon is a special moment. Then you have to go back and it's like, Hey, where are all those outfits you wore to bed on the honeymoon? Because now it's like a lot of sweatpants. In, a lot of sweatpants in, in the Netflix wardrobe. A lot of sweatpants. And the wife's like, yeah, and on the honeymoon, you were writing all kinds of bad poetry, but at least it was sincere. Where's all the bad poetry? It's like, oh, well, we have to learn to do life together when we're sick and when we're hurting and when we're not attractive. Welcome to the church. So in closing this out, man, what a great story. That's a true story. It's God's mission. You get to be a part of it. He sins, he moves. There will be opposition in the midst of the opposition. He has provided all that we need to be able to keep going forward by the grace, by the grace of God in Jesus. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised in 2017 if you're really following Jesus, if things get really hard, don't be surprised. But let's pursue together by getting close to Jesus, joy and fillings of the Holy Spirit. And let's take advantage of gospel community this year.